When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click on the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Pod Rooney! And in this episode, I'm talking to Aidan Gillen, the actor that, uh, well, you'll know from The Wire, from Game of Thrones, Love, Hate, and Queer as Folk. Uh, we had a great uh, meeting. Uh, he, again, with, uh, as with many of them, they invited me up to his house. Uh, and uh, we talked for quite a long time. It's quite a long chat and very informative. And uh, probably one of the... A few podcasts, if if I've ever done it again, which I would say, possibly you could do some watching of uh, research and listen. Uh, watch a few films like Paris, Texas, uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and we also talked about some of his perhaps lesser known work, uh, Mister Treacle or Treacle 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 Junior, and uh, Ooh Twelve Rounds. Uh, that was an action film. We mentioned that. And um, dude, what was the other one? Stills, I think. Uh, so, yeah, there's a couple of films. And uh, Some Mother's Son. But uh, great man. So uh, uh, before uh, before I uh, pass you on there to that interview, I'm just uh, just walking up a lane uh, trying to find... trying to, Well, we were trying to get into the graveyard for in, in um, Drogheda because that's really... A thing that is nice to do of a day, just to go into a graveyard. It's really nice here. We're just up this kind of hidden alley in Drogheda. Um, with, I'm with my daughter, Duana. Say hello, Duana. Hello. And we're uh, discovering things. There was a cat. Yeah, there was a little um, kind of a block missing from a wall, a hole in the wall. And there was a cat sitting in the hole. But the cat's gone now. But, but you know what it's... Like it's when when the uh, when there was rain and then the rain stops. Um, there's that kind of damp niceness in the air, and the plants are all rejuvenated. There's a lot of flowers and flower pots down here. A little bit misty now. Anyway, what about the adventure we had last week, Duana? The Monday before last, I was in the improv in the international bar. Excuse me, Duana. What did you see? That was last week. I knew it was. What? Thought it was longer. It was only last week, Donna. I was doing improv in the international bar upstairs, and uh, I was doing it with with Ian and Danny uh, Kyo, Ian Coppinger and uh, Kevin Gildee. And at at the halftime break, a couple of lads went downstairs for a smoke, and a fellow came up and said uh, that I'm really enjoying the show and. 
it was Chris Martin from Coldplay. And when we were on, we were only playing in a little tiny little venue. So Chris Martin from Coldplay was there on the Monday night, which was the night after he played in Croke Park to 80,000 people. And uh, after the show, we, we uh, uh, asked him if he'd do a photograph with us, you know, for a little bit of publicity. Not only did he yeah, agree to that and stayed back until everyone left uh, because he hadn't been recognised by anyone else. Um, he stayed back, uh, took did a few photos, had a chat, lovely chat, and then we, we went up to Brussels just up the road for a drink, and he came on up with us and we had a chat. And uh, as he was leaving, and he has a bodyguard with him who's a, li- a girl about my height, which isn't huge, uh, but she could kill you. You know she could kill you because she's so confident. She's got that look of, I could kill you. Uh, in a nice way. And she wouldn't just do it. She'd be, she'd do it for a reason. Yeah. Um, so uh, as he was leaving, he said to Kim, the bodyguard, uh, to, to, for her to give um, me uh, her email address and he said bring your bring your son to the gig in Cardiff either tomorrow night or the night after and I wasn't even going to go because I, to book a flight that in short notice would cost a fortune but and somebody said to me uh, well you should go and uh, and then I said yes I will go and so we ended up getting a ferry driving down to Rosslare getting a ferry across uh, from Rosslare to Pembroke and hiring a car from Pembroke and driving driving the two hours to Cardiff and picking up our tickets eventually and they had like a, a normal there were tickets for the show but there was also a wristband for backstage for the friends and family room where people just hung around uh, it have it was a free bar and, uh, and there was lots of kids rolling around on the floor and, and and then we went up to the show and the show was amazing the, and and you know just visually amazing and the atmosphere was amazing and us talking to people either side was just great fun there was just a great enjoyment Duana and I took Duana with me and Danny, my son. But Duana, did you like the show? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was very good. Yeah, it was one of the. Wasn't it one of the most? For me, it was. I'd yeah. never been to a show like that. Had you? Yeah, it was pretty good. The performance mm. of it, and the fireworks, the lights. Yeah. And the uh, the wristband, like so, we all got those wristbands that lit up, and uh, so everyone had them, and and their sequence. So it's all like it's just brilliant, like a celebration, like just in a wonderful occasion, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, we had the added bonus that we had gone on this kind of whirlwind of a journey. Yeah. Like we had to get up at seven, four, four, four a.m. Yeah. And. Uh, and uh, we w- we had not planned it, so it was like, let's do it. And then we got up, you know, 4 a.m., blah, 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 let's go down, down, got the ferry back, saw the show, went in backstage for a bit. It couldn't stay long because we were going, we wasn't going to stay over. Uh, the whole plan was we'd get back on the ferry at 2.45 a.m., cross back to Ireland, back in the car, get home. We were home by 11 in the morning, and we all went to bed. Um, but there is my little adventure and story. And I sent a thank you email to, uh, I think it was uh, Lauren, who's a tour manager, and she replied. And it was just brilliant. And just just to say, Chris Martin is just a gentle, gent, a gent, a gentleman, a gent, but uh, just a lovely man. Um, and, uh, you know, there you go. I mean, I just, just to 
put it in perspective, when you come off stage after playing an amazing show like that to 80,000 people, um, I just imagine it's hard to come back down again. But I guess you've got to get used to that if you're doing it every second night. But And then to come into a little show where there's 30, 40 people and to be so... Now, you know, we were chatting about... Uh, um, the whole thing of being on stage and getting maybe perhaps stage fright and things like that and we were chatting on the same level but not realising I suppose that it's a completely different thing to doing a little uh, comedy club to to play in, to a, in a stadium but um, but I guess it's kind of the same thing but in that you are performing so we've come we haven't got to the uh, graveyard we just went up an alley we're going to go up to the graveyard in a minute but in the meantime yeah, have a have. Here's Aidan Gillen and another gentleman, by the way. Yeah, Aidan Gillen. From Dublin yourself, I am from Dublin. Yeah, mm. from uh, north side of the city, Drumcondra. How's you been in? In fact, I seem to remember you and somebody else uh, editing videos from VHS to VHS in yeah. my house many years ago when my parents were away, and we actually had to go away and leave you in the house. Not that you know you wouldn't want to leave you in the house, but you yeah. did a course of some kind with my brother JP. Uh, JP yeah. is your brother. Yes, I never bought that together. Yeah, so you were around in the house editing video. You know, I mean, it was primitive equipment. It was two VHSs yes. and like press record, press pause, etc. Yeah. Change the tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's gas. Yeah, it was a video production course I did with uh, Foss, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's so I grew up in that yeah. house, which is yeah, north side of Dublin, Clonaff Road. Um, Oh, so right. the city, really, you know. I've been in the house, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how's JP these days? He's yeah. good, yeah. I saw him a couple of days ago. Mm. Um, yeah, I see him a fair bit. I mean, I'm away a good bit, but when, I, when I'm around, I usually see him. He's got a kid who's five, so, you know, he takes... Uh, that takes up a lot of his time looking after the, his son and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, but he's in good form. Yeah, that's cool. So tell us hello. I will, yeah. Um and so, uh, yeah, so from, from an early age, uh, were, you, were you into performing or that kind of thing? Yeah. Were you like a Billy Barry kid? <laughs> no, I wasn't a Billy Barry kid. I used to enjoy watching the Billy Barry kids on uh, the Late Late Show. Every now and then they'd roll them out. I was, listen, I was acting from a young age. Oh, but, but you were, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a youth theatre near where I grew up on Gardner Street, mm. Dublin Youth Theatre, uh, and it was in a building that had formerly been a, like a local youth club, like not a drama group, just a regular youth club. And my sister and my brother used to be in it. Mm. So I was quite familiar with the building as a place to go, you know, as a youth club, have mm. fun. And then the, the youth theatre set up in there and myself and my sister went up and joined. A mate of mine was in it, but it was, you know, uh, just down the road. So it was in our kind of field of vision you know mm. um what kind of things would you be doing there then for, like well uh every saturday they do workshops you know um 
acting workshops, I suppose. You'd be doing learning your improv skills oh, and yeah. all of that. Uh, we used to do plays in the place on Knocker George Street is not there anymore called the Dublin Shakespeare Society Studio. Like it was a Shakespeare amateur company. I mean, Gabriel Byrne started out in there. And my the guy who was my history teacher at the time used to be in there. That was always a bit weird. Yeah. Um, but they had a space basement theater in, uh, yeah, just Knocker George Street there um, at the top. So the first few sh- plays I was in would have been in there. Yeah. And then we also did plays at the project. Now, I didn't have massive parts in these things, like tiny. I mean, the first role I had was as a robot in a, a play called The Do-It-Yourself Frankenstein Outfit. So I had a cardboard like robot uh, costume, and I had to walk across the stage as a robot at some point. Mm. Um, so there wasn't much uh, facial um, acting? No, none at all. And yeah. I, didn't even, I think one night I didn't even show up. Now, I'm, I'm pretty, <laughs> now, look, I'm pretty disciplined now. I mean, I, yeah. learned, I learned that stuff mm. early on. There was one one actor there, and we were doing a play not long after that in the project, and I was messing around backstage. Uh, I think it was it was firing syringes that were like blocked up at the end, with like you jammed them into the table and filled them with wood, so they created you know a kind of an airlock, and then you'd like use them as yeah guns. We were doing a play about drugs, right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, he just came up and gave me a full open-handed whack across the face. Uh, you know, just for, for messing with strange. Well, it was more like uh, you know we were making a bit of noise just off stage. You know what I mean? Kind of tooling around, and there's a show on there and an audience, and it was good. You know, I got I learned the lesson. Uh, mm. Anyway, the, the the robot acting. Um, yeah, I think I missed a night, and no one noticed. Mm. That was kind of that's a distressing blow to your ego. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Anyway, yeah, we used to do. Shows there. I mean, I loved it. I spent most of my spare time there uh, from the age of, say, 13 and, you know, between 13 and 14 till 17. You know, I was up there all the time. Mm. Um, by the time I came to leaving school, I did a... Uh, I joined the National Youth Theatre, which was a, another kind of thing that you had to audition for, and we did a... Yeah another play in the project it did quite well and uh what was that play it was a midsummer night's dream mm. and i got the re- you know i took the reviews up to down to equity mm. and i got neil tobin to propose you know to sign my form you had to you know you know in those days you had to be a member of equity to get work as an actor it's different now you know yeah, but it was a catch-22 where you have to have experience to get yeah it. and people used to yeah. talk about the amount of words you had like i got seven words on a um a radio play and you know you add them to your 35 words and you'd build up to 100 words and you'd get a permit and then you know two years later you might get a card yeah. but i did convince them through uh you know i had a pretty decent cv by the age of 17 I mean, it wasn't professional stuff, but uh, I had a bunch of reviews from showing the project which were favorable uh, towards me, and I got Neil Tobin to propose me as a member. How did you contact Neil Tobin? Well, his daughter was in the play. Oh, He'd come okay. to see it. In fact, his three, a few of his kids used to be in the youth here, so, but it was a good one. It was a good one to have. Mm. Anyway, I started working professionally then at the age of 17, that is amazing, really. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I didn't really see any um, that things were going to be any other way, you know. Um, the first couple of years are quite lean, you know. 
in that uh, there wasn't that much work around. There wasn't that many much work for 17-year-olds, but I got a few bit parts in films. Mm. And um, myself and JP used to watch uh, videos. It was kind of like there was a two-year period of watching every film that was available up right. in the, either the Red Corner Shop. Um, they had a video... Um, rental place. Video rental. There was one up in Drumcondra further up. There was one in the Five Lamps. I mean, there was a bunch of them around. Mm. And... Uh, so it was kind of an educational... Did they have, <laughs> like, uh, any foreign films? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they would have... Yeah, know. it was a mixture of mm. everything, like the horrors, like the zombie films, mm. and um, you know, George A. Romero films, Fitzcarraldo, and, you know... Uh, yeah, everything from the art house to the uh, grind house. Yeah. I know, I, it's amazing that time. I mean, because was, there was a, a rental place on uh, Baggett Street there, near the Waterloo, upstairs. And uh, you'd get three out at a time. It'd be like, you know, when you're, you're, uh, your eyes are hungrier than your stomach. Or you get three or four out at a time and then be trying to stay awake. I'd always watch them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, yeah. 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 It was bringing them back late, that was always the... Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. having to pay... Especially if you didn't like it, mm. you know, or if it was one that you started watching and you didn't finish it and then you were so, you know, down about it that you forgot to, forgot to bring it back and had to pay, pay like three days rental. But they were, there was always a bit of negotiation mm. uh, available there as well. Depending on how It's like no one else is going to be renting this. Exactly. Shit. <laughs> I was going to say that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but the, what were the big films that you say would have influenced you? Uh Paris, Texas, oh, I watched quite a lot. Amazing. Rumblefish, I watched quite a lot. Mm. Yeah, I saw that recently. Fitzcarraldo, yeah. Days of Heaven, The Deer Hunter. Yeah. You know, loads. Yeah. But also the, the horrors and, you know, um, the driller killers and <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh, Days of Heaven's amazing film. And... Uh, What's his first film? Um, oh, Badlands. Badlands. Incredible. Yeah. 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 All of those. Um, and, and so, you, I mean, Paris, Texas again, and Days of Heaven, Badlands. They're slow. Badlands, not so much. They're slow build films. Which, mm. It's nice to have grown up in that era and to have uh, the fact that they actually rented those films. In those yeah. places, I think they just got everything they could, and having older brothers and sisters always helps with music and film. As, yeah. You know, especially if they're into films or music or books, because you'll yeah. get you'll always get some good pointers there. You know, great, great thing about, about, about Paris, Texas, the soundtrack, Roy Cooter mm. soundtrack as well, amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched and, it again recently. It was on TV and uh, still so watchable, and it is slow. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the point, you know. Yeah, and that uh, speech, I think the Harry Dean Stanton one, where where he goes to see her, uh, and he goes, "There was this man," and he talks about. Yeah, I mean, it's quite st- it is quite stagey. I don't know if it was based on a play. I mean, Sam Shepard wrote it, so it's quite theatrical. Yeah. Um, but that scene is amazing. He's looking, for, and for those who don't know it, although most people, I'm sure, do. Yeah. He he's looking for his former partner, and he finds her in a working in a kind of peep show. show. So mm. it's a one way mirror, so he can see her, but she can't see him. And he goes back a few times. Uh, they've got a kid, 
Mm -hmm. bring, he brings the, he brings the kid along with him. The kid's waiting inside in the car, and eventually he kind of tells her the story of this man who's him, and she realizes kind of halfway through the what's happening, and she comes up to the window. I mean, it's quite you know, it's very powerful. She's beautiful as well in the pink uh, mohair jumper. Yeah, Natasha Kinski, that is. Yeah. Mm. Um. So then, what what kind of um, uh, film or TV work were you, would you say you started getting? Wanderly Wagon. Really? Was the first. Are you thing. serious? Yeah. Wow. I was an extra in Wanderly Wagon. Mm. Well, not an extra, but I played a shadow along with a group of other um, people, and uh, someone from Wanderly Wagon went off to the Shadowlands and they encountered uh so you know it was a screen and a bunch of people and our, our image our shadow was projected quite crisp onto the screen and we had various uh mm. different things to do and a lot of voice work you mm. know creepy spooky Shadowlands yeah <laughs> cool cool so I got that and then um there was a there was a director <laughs> Uh, who I handed for a while. Anyway, I rang up and said, uh, what's the story of that? Well, if you want to come out on um, Friday, we'll give you something to do, you know? Mm. And uh, I got it, went out for a costume fit in a couple of days before, brought loads of clothes out and thought, yeah, this is it. I've... And then, you know, I got a phone call. There's a car coming to collect you. There's a car coming to collect you. Like that was wow. something that had never happened. So this taxi came and mm. brought us out to a set down in... Uh, East Wall somewhere, and uh, I was put behind. I was put behind this brick wall, you know, behind a wall, and given a cue to throw uh, something over, mm. a bottle or a brick or something, and that was it. You know, I wasn't in the <laughs> really? shot at all. <laughs> I was throwing a rock from the other side of the wall. Yeah. And then at the but end, I went up to, to get you to do yeah. that. <laughs> I went up to get some food. No, I went up to get paid at the end. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I went up to this woman and said. You know, how do I get paid? And she was like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> the guy who threw the thing over the wall. Yeah, I mean, it took a bit of convincing. Mm. Um, but they mm. sorted me in the end, 60, 60 quid, which is pretty good mm. for, yeah. that, for that. But you th do you reckon you were, you were a hustler? You know, yeah. Like you, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, apart from, like, those kind of gigs aside, I mean, the next couple of ones that I got, which were proper, I mean, they weren't big parts, they were... You know, there were small, small roles, but in decent films. It was a film called uh, Lonely Passion, the, the Lonely Judith Passion Heron. of Judith Heron, which mm. starred Maggie Smith and Bob Hoskins. Mm. And I did get a tiny part in that, but it was a proper part, you know. Mm. It was, cre the credits was strange. It was called Youth in Liquor Store. Mm. But as, you know, translated by, I don't know who was doing the credits, uh, you know, some American or something, but it was liquor Young Flight and Off License yeah, yeah, is what yeah. it actually was. Because yeah. um, she was playing an alcoholic and uh, there was a scene where she went looking for a bottle of hooch out of hours, and she knocked on the door of a, uh, a shop, like an off-license, mm. which was filmed up in um, Stony Batter, kind of Arbor Hill. And I played the cheeky kid, complete with cigarette dangling out of mouth and mm. cap. And uh, mm. it was directed by Jack Clayton. Now, Jack Clayton is a kind of legendary figure in the film world, the late Jack Clayton. Mm. Aside from his own films, which he made like The Innocents, that film which is based on The Turn of the Screw, which is a very mm. atmospheric kind of horror. I mean, it was it was quite influential on The Others, 
All right, yeah. Yeah. And he also made the film Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is based on a Ray Bradbury novel, which was a, an animation. Okay. Um, but he was John Huston's first AD on all the big films, like The African Queen really? and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, I think. And, you know, he was a proper figure. And that was a gate-crashed audition, which is... There was a bunch of people around who I knew, who I knew from the youth theatre who were all starting out trying to make... Uh, waves they're not trying to make waves they're just trying to get work mm. as professional actors some of whom uh you know some of whom did were more successful you know like we all we were all kind of hustling and mm. you hung out down in the actor center on sir john rogerson's key which was a you know a room, a room or two rooms upstairs and there was a notice board and it kind of let you know what was going on mm. or you met in the pub and someone said oh there's this director is down there and someone had an audition for a lonely passion of judith here and so i just went down with my CV. I mean, it was quite. It was quite good with that stuff. I used to never have any photos, though. That was a problem. Yeah. Um. I'd had. I'd have a couple, so I'd ask for them back. You know, right, if I yeah. didn't think it was happening, I'd say, "Listen, if you're not going to use that, uh, can I have it back?" Yeah. That kind of thing. It probably used to, to uh, charm them or something. I mean, I was when I met that fellow. I remember him looking at my sleeves and my jumper, which were weren't there. You know, it has really fucking raggy. Yeah. Sleeves on it. On it old crusty woolly jumper yeah. and I remember him looking at the jumper quite a lot and being amused mm. and uh, it's know, just your chutz bar or whatever that's what I got the gig from but you know my yeah. first professional stage job blah 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 mm. um, it was also a hustle and it was um, and this is this is this boring does anyone no anyone no, no this, this is really stuff? interesting yeah no it is Um. Mm. There was a, a director from a Scottish director who works in London called Robin Lefebvre. Right? He's really good, and he mm. was in town casting a play that was going on in the Bush Theatre in London. And uh, someone had been around in Tony Burke's pub in Northridge or in Hill Street mm. um, the night before. And someone says, "There's two plays being cast. There's a there's a fellow from Scotland who's going to be down in this place, and then Andy Hines is casting a Frank McGuinness play down at the gate." So I had my night in the pub and then, you know, I was only 18 or whatever and then I got mm. my, got up early, got my couple of plastic folders with the CVs and I think I had one headshot between the two. So I, mm. I went down to the first guy, Andy Hines, and met him on the, st- the street, waited outside the Gate Theatre and uh, he came along and I knew him because he directed the, the National Youth Theatre play that I was in. So now that I think of it, I think he thought I was okay but... Uh, I know he was a bit frustrated that I didn't, I really, I don't think in that National Youth Theatre thing that I really had it together until, you know, the first, the first night when there's people there. But that's kind of normal. Oh, yeah, you were holding back until... Maybe. And, yeah. and like, as far as, I think I had my stuff learned quite close to the, to the line there, you know. Right, okay. And we're kids. We're messing around. We're going out every night and having a great time. And mm. Mm. Anyway, uh, Andy was quite straight. I think he said, there's not a part for you in this, but... I think it was him who told me about the other thing. He said, but there's a guy down there who's casting this play that's going on in, in London. So I went down there with the thing and I waited and saw the guy went over and um, he said, well, I've, you know, the list is full, so uh, mm-hmm. leave your number. So I left my number and about four o'clock that afternoon, I got a phone call from Ono Gorman, right, who's a actor who actually had the lead in the thing where I was throwing the brick, the rock over the wall. Right, right. So he got on the phone to me and said, your man wants to, wants to see you. So I came down and I did the audition. And 
Um, and it's funny because he told us afterwards, it was the fact that I asked for the picture back. That's what... Um, well, it's just, it may, you know, it's little things like that. You know, if someone's, if you're seeing, if you ever cast anything or, you know, there's, you're seeing 30 people coming in and they're doing the same part and, you know, they might all be as good as each other or as bad as each other or whatever, but no matter how, after a while, somebody could come in and be brilliant, but it just seems kind of the same as yeah. what the other people did. A mate of mine is a director... He does quite big stuff over in the States. And I was in his house once and we were looking at all the audition tapes for a big series. And, you know, there was a lot of actors that you would recognize, you know, famous mm-hmm. actors and with great reputations. But you're looking at them and it's the ones who get it wrong or the ones who have fucked up in some way that you notice, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And you go, oh, they're good. And it's suddenly it's when there's a bit of reality involved. Yeah. Or somebody's thrown for some reason and they have to either cover for themselves or just break out of it for a minute and slip back in. Yeah. If you look at the... I was looking at... Not that I want to talk about Game of Thrones, but I came across a audition tape of uh, the kid, uh, you know, um, Joffrey, Jack Gleason, mm. And there's a, that's a great example of it where he slips out of his thing and just says, oh, yeah. And he, it was something about he was trying to get the line right and he went from his this accent he was doing to his own and then went back into this thing and it was really startling and you could see how something like that makes you go that's that's spontaneous things can happen with this person or you know you see them working their they can work magic um, effort, effortlessly right you know? yeah, yeah, yeah um anyway so that was a bit of a hustle and then i ended up getting cast in that job which was over in london and myself and gary lyden who was there was three Three. I mean, this is to be honest. This is all stuff that I've been asked before. So, is this still interesting? No, it's still interesting. Yeah. Um, so, Gary Lydon and myself and Dervla Kirwan. You know, we. I was eighteen, nineteen. Gary was a couple of years older. Dervla Kirwan's about sixteen. You know, mm. and we went over to uh, to London. I had a vision in my head of like the Palladium or something. <laughs> I think I saw, I Massive definitely theater. saw there was going to be lights. There was going to be like, this, you know, names and lights. Not our names, but like the name of the theater at least. Yeah. And uh, we got to Shepherd's Bush. to where it was. And it's a room over a pub. Um, tiny, you know. We went in and I was like, wow, this is uh, about the same size as the Dublin Shakespeare Society studio in Northridge, George Street, which is tiny. But it held more. It held about 100 people, you know, or maybe mm. less. And you had to clamber up, you know, and people would drink pints and smoke in there. Mm. And there was no, there was like these cushioned seats, it was a studio type black box thing. And you had to kind of, uh, it was kind of lethal, you know, but mm. our play worked. It was the first of Billy Roach's professional plays and a Wexford writer. And, uh, you know, it became yeah. a pretty well-loved trilogy called the Wexford Trilogy. Um, mm. And I, I took part in uh, one of the other two plays as well. And then we did the whole lot uh, as, you know, as a trilogy. But this was like over the next period of four years mm. as he wrote them. Um, but like, uh, it was this tiny place. It was that the hotbed. Did I just use that term? Yeah. I don't like that word. Oh, well, uh, anyway, you can, um, uh, I'll just throw in yeah, a whatever cinnamon. anyway of, of new writing. <laughs> I just say it in yeah, London. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And there was there's a few theaters in London that do specialize in new writing. Okay. Mm. So every play is new. The Bush is one of them. Mm. Um, Hampstead and the Royal Courts do mostly new writing or at least did in those days. Mm. Um, and those are the places I ended up working. 
um, which was exciting. I don't. I think you know, nearly every play I, I did for seven or eight years was was a new play that had never been seen before. Yeah. Um, but look, people came to our play. Mm. It got well reviewed, and famous people came to our play. You know, David Bowie came to our play. Yeah. Wow. Um. That's and Leslie Grantham. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> So that kind of, it was taken off then, like as a career. Oh yeah, so like I sussed that, again, I went around, I said, I asked people who would know who were the best agents in London, and I got a list of like 25, I said like, go, mm. try these, these are the 25, the best. So I said, okay, well, let's go and see if I can get one of the best agents in London. Mm. So I got my kit together for, you know, maybe the 25, I went around, per, you know, on foot, stuck mm. the things in the letterbox, I handed it in to the office and mm. got meetings with about six mm. and three, two or three said, we'll take you on, but they were really, they were really good. Mm. So I went with one of them. Yeah. And I've been with her since ever since. Oh, all right, cool. And that's, um, thir- 30 years. That's just 29 years, you know, that's a long oh. relationship to have with age. She was just starting out and right, a couple yeah. of years older than me. And, um, how soon did like queer, did queer as folk come along? That was way down that the line. Way way down the line. That was what, when uh, did um, uh, some other son happen? Was that before that? Some other son was filmed in 1995. Mm. Um, now at that stage, by that by then I'd been working for a fair bit, you know, and I'd been in London for seven years. Mm. Um, I got a few really good TV roles off BBC mm. early on. They used to do a lot of the screen two dramas, which is like a one-off, like a film. And it's made like a film. Essentially, it is a film, mm. uh, but it's shown on TV. More people are going to see it than are mm-hmm. ever going to see it in the cinema, you know. And I had twigged that early on as a... Um, well, look, there was a lot of good TV drama at the time, and I was very into yeah. the likes of The Singing Detective, right, for example. And I was watching that, and I was going, I want to do that. I want to yeah. do something like that. Mm. And... Uh, you know, there was a bit, there was, I think there was a bit of snobbery around about TV, you know, film is cool, TV isn't. But I was looking at this going, well, that's pretty cool. And I yeah. read an interview with Christopher Eccleston where he was talking about TV being, uh, you know, a real populist medium and a way to get, you know, where you can get a, a message across or a political message across. Yeah. People will see it. You can oh, put it on the cinema and it can be a great film, but people mightn't go. And in fact, probably the better it is, the less likely there are. Uh, the people mm. are less likely to see it because you know certainly in the seventies or I'm sure the eighties as well. TV, BBC TV was BBC drama was incredible. Yeah, like, like yeah, the, BBC, the British stuff like that yeah. started out. Yeah, and yeah. Alan Clark in the eighties, great yeah. stuff like Elephant or yeah. uh, The Firm. Um, and now that that's come full. Well, in America, certainly TV dramas. Yeah, it's changed it's, now, and yeah. you know, it's. I mean, the film and the TV, they're on a par with each other and mm. actors work in both and probably want to work in TV because it's more, there's more interesting stuff happening there and you can do a, get cast in something that is, takes 60 hours to tell the story and still doesn't have a conclusion. I mean, that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, it's amazing. Um, so much of it though. There's now so much of it that uh, you've really got a, so much choice. I mean, yeah. I've got Netflix and I end up not watching anything. Although I did watch four episodes of Glow last night. That was right. pretty interesting. Is it? Yeah. Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Oh, sorry. I watched the documentary about Glow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, d- I didn't know anything about it before. Yeah. But yeah, well, it's interesting. Did I? This yeah. is the thing about Netflix. I just went and I said, what's that? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, 
Um, a lot of good actors in it. it it's funny, actually, because when I started watching, uh, let's say, The Wire, actually, that you were in, and before that, um, oh, the gangster thing, whatever. Um, and then I went back, I think, and I watched something like one of Scorsese's films, which I would be a big fan of. But then I thought, wow, you don't really get the hugely rounded characters that you if you're used to watching something like The Wire, mm. when you watch The Wire, you know, these characters slowly, you get to know them. Look, it was a new thing, you know. It had been done mm. before. It had been done with Heimat, the German TV series that took place, that covered generations. You know, I don't know how many episodes was in Heimat, but it went, yeah. it covered a hundred, you know, like a hundred years or 50 years or whatever. Yeah. And I think if you asked David Simon about it, they would reference Heimat as a template. Right, yeah. Um, I watched a bit of Heimat recently on TV and it's pretty good. I'm, yeah. Yeah, oh, I must check that uh, out. But, you know, it, generally it wasn't done. I mean, you know, everyone talks about The Sopranos as being the one that that's changed what I was trying it, to whereas remember. I think it was Twin Peaks. Yeah, I think Which Twin, was way before The Sopranos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The which, tw- Twin Peaks is a bit weird, though. I tried to watch it there recently and I got stuck um, halfway. Yeah, in. Well, well, it is yeah. weird. Um, but you know, as with that thing of you know, just weird, filmic it's... television, you know, that's uh, many, many episodes long and made with you know the same production values as film. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Telling a long mm. tale that may not be resolved again, you know. Yeah. But what I was going to say is, so t- some other song did that come before? Uh, do you know if it came before? Um Queer as folk. Or I know exactly where it came. Where that, yeah. that was, I, sh- I should know this. I should have done no, it. <laughs> um, some uh, of the sun, yeah. I mean, that came in mid-90s. Uh, I can tell you, I can bore you with how, how all that happens as well. It's funny do. that you get these jobs because this is this maybe... I don't get jobs from auditions because I'm not good at it, right? Really? I'm not, I'm not really. I'm really not. Uh, do, do you think, can I just ask you, do you think the audition process is... Not even a great way of casting actors. Uh, it depends. It's probably the easiest way to do it, but if I was casting something, I probably would go another way. Go and see them on well, stage? Go and see or them or, or have a chat. Yeah, have a chat. Or find people who haven't acted before, you know? But then that's a bit... Uh, a that's risk. kind of diminishing your skill as an actor. I know, but saying. so what? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, yeah, I'd probably but isn't, it, isn't it a bit weird? Like, say, so, yeah, I was listening to you talking about a film still, right? And there's a young guy in that who was a first-time actor. He's a rapper or something. Yes, Sonny Green. So, so you, you'd... I think they did audition how him, do you, Oh, really? Okay. I think he probably did come in and read. I mean... Um, but how do you feel? Like, I mean, I think is Is it Ken Loach? He uses, like, non-actors as well. Yeah, or, I don't mind that. I mean, I'd, um, I, would, I would do the same. Hmm. But doesn't that make... you, you Put me out you, of a job. Your whole... Um, career is you've trained as an actor and then well, you I, did, but I didn't train as an actor I didn't train as an actor though I work as an actor I didn't train as one yeah anyway okay. yeah it does I get it okay and when I say but that's you know I what, what am I supposed to do if someone off, you know, offers me a great role I'll do it I'm mm. not going to say to them why don't you get somebody who hasn't acted before although I have said it a few times and I have said why don't you get somebody else for this part and they have and they were, it was the right thing to do. Mm. I've been the wrong person in roles a couple of times, and that's horrible. Do you feel okay? that? Yeah. No, yeah, it's happened, it happened a few times, and mm. it does happen. I've got a pretty, pretty good, I think I've got a pretty good sense of what I can I can't do or what I should and shouldn't take on. Mm. But you don't want to be the wrong person in a role. So if it feels wrong, mm. you know, and I have got quite close to starting on a couple of things and said, listen, 
I think you should get that person or get someone else, you know? Mm. Um, and they have. Uh, yeah. And then I've gone after things that they really didn't want me for. And not that they didn't, but that you were like... But you felt this is for you. a couple you. of roles. I mean, there's a role I loved doing like about six, seven years ago. I was in a film called Blitz. And I really wanted this part. And I knew that the people they were seeing were way, way younger than me. The people they were going after were like 20 years younger. Mm-hmm. But I hustled because I wanted it. Um, anyway, look, the, the some of the sun. I was doing. A, I was doing a play, the Royal Court, mm. uh, called Mojo. Jez Butterworth's first play. Jez has since gone on to write massive plays like uh, Jerusalem, which is a huge, huge hit in London and New York, mm. and this new play, The Ferryman, which is set in uh, Northern Ireland during the hunger strikes. Which is again, it's huge. It's going to be. Mm. Um, they did a run at the Royal Court and they're going to the West End like I think they're going to start in a couple of weeks um, Jim Sheridan and Terry George came along to see the, see the play and again they said well you were tied to a jukebox with your trousers around your ankles you know there was a guy who had a sword at your genitalia you know it was it was, you know, it was that that kind of um, again thought this, this, who's this guy, you know? All right, what's yeah. up with him? Now I had this really weird meeting where it was uh, myself and another actor who was quite well known at the time in the room with them, and they were seeing us both at the same time. Mm. And uh, then they asked the other guy to leave. <laughs> weird. Yeah. Anyway, uh, ended up doing that. Yeah. That's, the, that's that's a very long answer to the, but I'm just, the question. Uh, it's uh, uh, I would say it's a controversial film at the time, wasn't it? Was it I don't know that it was, it was controversial. Not really. I mean, it was a. Its angle was, uh, you know, it was the story of the hunger strikes, or a story of the hunger strikes, told from the point of view of a woman who didn't really want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, uh, a, a pacifist, and it was to get the w- the women's point of view across. I suppose mm. there were, you know, she did have a counterpart in a woman, a mother, the other mother of the other guy who was quite was more extreme. Republican. She and, was a Republican, you know, like well. was a, pr- a yeah. proper nationalist Republican. Yeah. Whereas Helen Mirren's character was just drawn into it, and she didn't like it, you mm. know. And that was, and the film was told from her perspective. Mm. Um, but it was it also, you know, it was coming out in '96, so it was just as the uh, as the, the peace process was was R- right. Okay. Uh, coming into effect properly even though there were you know post then we had stuff like uh the oma bombing and stuff like yeah that. but that was so extreme it wasn't really part of the um, that, that was uh the general continuity wasn't feeling it? look uh mm. so i don't i don't i don't believe some other some was a controversial film at all might have been controversial from some people who wanted it to be uh more well, from an english point of view maybe I don't know no, about that. Yeah. Just uh, Helen Mirren, such a big actor, to be playing a role in that. that. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Uh, yeah, haven't thought about it. Okay, but um, so in your role in that, did you uh, physically have to change yourself? Well, you see, the thing is that the play I was doing beforehand, I'd lost a lot of weight for it. Right. Yeah. Um, I was playing a character called Skinny, so I took things. I take things literally. Yeah. You know, and I went on a special diet, which was. Uh, I lost about a stone and a half to do this play. And um, so, so by the time 
we came to do the the film, even though it didn't really require, you know, there's only so much you can do in set, you know, nine weeks or whatever. If you've got to go from looking normal to looking mm. emaciated in that period of time, it's not really that possible, especially if you're shooting stuff. Out of sequence. So you do look thinner, though. Yeah, but I was thinner. Do I look thinner than from, I do now? No, from the beginning of the film. Yeah, that, well, uh, when you originally went into prison, you know, there's things you can do with, uh, by taking your shirt off. Or I think at one point towards the end, there was a little, a couple of little prosthetic cheekbones, and yeah, um, you know, it's lighting and stuff. Okay, well, didn't look like so long ago. Yeah. I don't I haven't seen that film for a you long time. Fairly. Um, uh, healthy and muscly when you went into prison, and then a bit later you were you were thinner. So I'm just asking if you were. <laughs> we went to so, Tony Quinn mm. actually. Tony Quinn um, has a gym and uh, up in Eccles Street. Yeah, you know Tony Quinn, the health yeah, guru. Yeah, it's yeah. all a bit kind of this tablet. It's it's, it's yeah, it's gym. It's whatever, but it's also a kind of spiritual thing, you know. Right. Okay. And myself and David O'Hara, who was playing the other uh, young fella in yeah. the film, we went. We were sent to Tony Quinn's to get ourselves a bit, you know, just a bit leaner looking, maybe. Yeah. Or even before we started, yeah, you know, we were fine anyway. But like, uh, so I was asking his advice: What can we do? And he said, "Well, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the lads now they do the forty-day fast." Yeah. And I was thinking the 40-day fast. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. That's, that's what he said. He said, yeah. I said the 40-day fast. And he says, well, like our Lord. Yeah. Um, and he told us a story about a fellow who did a 40-day fast. And then he was in a terrible condition, and like lying there, um, really weak and frail. But after the 40 days, he suddenly was able to jump up and he ran through. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he said he was in a desert. I think he was, he was in um so he obviously wasn't in Ireland when he was doing yeah. this. He wasn't lying down up in Tony Quinn's when this was happening. Right, okay, he was yeah, in, yeah. Uh, the Mojave Desert or something. And he just ran and he ran and he ran. And then um, eventually he uh, passed a load of mercury out of his body that he didn't know was in there. Mercury. Are you serious? This is the story I was doing. Yeah. yeah. What was he doing eating mercury? Well, he might have yeah. eaten a thermometer when he was a kid or something. You know, the way <laughs> yeah. that your mommy was always yeah. shoving Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, or you're always just putting fish. it in your shelf. Yeah, maybe. It's in fish. Or in the water in certain areas. Yeah. 40-day fast. Yeah, I don't know. But they were drinking water. Yeah. Uh, drinking water, yeah, 40-day fast. But still, I don't know if you could run after it. But anyway, that's interesting. And who sent you up there? Did Jim Sheridan send you up there? He did, yeah. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> gas. Yeah. And did you work with Jim then after that again? No, 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 no. I mean, um, he wrote that and he produced yeah. it. He didn't direct it. Terry uh, George. Terry George directed it. Who was involved with uh, paramilitaries, was he? Well, I don't know if he was involved in paramilitaries. He was interned. He was interned, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, okay. um, which isn't, does not signify being involved with paramilitaries. But no. you'd have to ask him. Mm. Um, he wrote... Uh, you know, he's from Belfast. He's from Twinbrook Estate in... Belfast, mm. where Bobby Sands is from, you know, so he's from a similar kind of background. Mm. But you know, I don't really know um, everything about Terry. Um, but he'd co- he'd written the um, in the name of the Father screenplay mm-hmm. before that. So you know, these themes are things that he'd. Uh, it's, it's familiar. It's where he's from. You know. Yeah, yeah. He did win an Oscar for a short film a couple of years ago the called Shore. The Shore. Yeah, 
which was a more gentle side of yeah, Northern kind of Ireland's life, but still had shadows of the conflict in there. Chased, I suppose. Is that man? Well, no, I mean, you know, I think one of the characters had one hand. He lost a hand while he was running away. <laughs> yeah, it was very strange. He lost a fake hand. Yeah, it fell off. Yeah, but where did he lose his hand in the first place? Right, yeah. yeah. I'd have to ask Conrad Hill that, because I think he was the guy with the hand. All right, yeah. Okay. And so, well, let's get on then to Queer as Folk. That, was that a, a massive break for you? Um, kind of? Apparently so, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, the thing is, I'd been working for years before that. And for me, mm. the one I thought was the break was a film called Safe, which was directed by Antonia Burge, who was one of that school of British film directors that yeah, you'd put her in with, and she frequently is referenced alongside Alan Clark and Ken Loach. Um, she made... This was her debut film. It was called Safe, and it was about homeless kids in London. Then she made Priest, the one with Robert uh, with Linus Roach as a gay priest in Liverpool. Okay. Um, she made a couple of films with Robbie Carlyle, uh, Face, Ravenous. She made a film about the some of the nine eleven bombers called uh, the Hamburg Cell. She was a great director. Oh, anyway, um, actually, so yeah. we did we did this drama which was shot fast in. 1993 I think um, it was shown as a film in, even though it was made for TV it won the, a big award up at the Edinburgh Film Festival and uh, won the BAFTA the ne- next year for best single drama mm. which everyone thought the snapper was going to win because it was up against the snapper but it was safe which got it um, so like is that basically you don't see you see it as in terms of the work as opposed to if you know what I mean, I th- I'm saying to you, oh, is that your big break? But you're saying, well, I'm not really... Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I know what you're saying, break, as in loads of people see it. And yeah, media, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pictures yeah. of you in magazines or whatever. But lo- loads of people did see that. And I did mm. get people... It was the, I think it was the first time, even though I'd been in a few things before, a few other uh, pretty decent one-off roles on, in TV mm. dramas, like lead roles, you know. Mm. Um, but... Uh, Slightly more obscure subjects or scripts. One about uh, Nielsen, the murderer, the um, the serial killer. Right, yeah. Um, mm. In North London. A couple of years before that called Killing Time, which was very good. And people did see it. But I think it was after this safe thing. Was I was on the dart and somebody came up and said, you know, with, gave us a very positive feedback. Somebody I didn't know. And I was like, okay, that's interesting because that's never happened before. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Um, and the guy up in the shop up the road in the news agent said we saw you on the telly last night and we thought we had a good laugh at you and we thought your poor mother she must be very embarrassed so that was another kind of yeah. uh, but, he, but, he, but he clocked it you know yeah. anyway I get what you're saying and yes Queer's focus and it was also the first so lots of people did see it and it was the first mm. time I felt uncomfortable about the exposure as well mm. as in you know people were like pointing at you mm. and or coming over and talking to you just a little bit too much you know how but it was, does that like make you feel is it is it, is it uh, not it? great you know but i mean yeah. at least in those days it wasn't the, the, the smartphone hadn't come in yet so you weren't getting photographed everywhere and anywhere mm. um although they were starting to come in but it, you know it was fine because i wasn't sure i thought that the i thought the reaction to that although you know i took that role because i could see it was a brilliant script and i thought well i haven't played this character before and you know I'd like it just seems quite daring I don't just mean 
the content of it or what the character's sexuality is. That's not really the issue. Of course, it was a huge part of it, but I don't think that's what defines a person, you know. It just, I just thought it was quite a fiery, daring uh, set of scripts, you know. Mm. Um, but I also thought the, the reaction would be, ne- there'd be negative reaction, as in, I thought, I'm not sure what I'm letting myself in for. Am I going to get, like, uh, punched in the face in the street? I wasn't sure. I thought it could happen. Yeah. Um, and I did have a couple of incidences, but not not many, you know, not many at all, like one or two. It was mostly uh, very positive, and people did see it. I mean, I moved to I moved to America though, just as it came out, to so I didn't have to deal with uh, any of that. Yeah, and I did a couple of indie, strange indie films over in Los Angeles. Yeah, and stayed for about six months. So when I came back, it had oh. kind of died down a bit. Well, and but I was meeting people over there. Had seen, it. seen it, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. And also, you were hearing all these stories, like like Charlie Hunnam, who was the kid in it, or the younger guy. You know, he yeah. came over. He was also in Los Angeles at the same time as me. And he was going. I was at Madonna's house last night. I said, "Why were you at Madonna's house?" Well, because Madonna saw the thing and she invited me out to the house. And uh, you know, mm. so you're hearing these stories about people like Madonna and Elton John and all the producers over there. Not all of them, but you know, they'd all the people in the industry. They they all knew about it. Mm. So in a way, it was a a break. Although uh, m- you know, my reaction to it was to not take the roles that came my way, or to wait for something that was suitably different, or to go and work in an indie psychological horror, you know, which was more Roman Polanski's Repulsion mm. than Queer as Folk Part Two, you know. But it, that's, it takes a bit of courage, I'd imagine, to to uh, turn down roles because uh, they're so similar to... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't see it as courageous. I would see it as my... Uh, it's just the way I like it, you know? So, um, But it's, I mean, it's, it, a, it's a bit... It's just like, I suppose most actors might go, this is my chance to maybe at least be a bit... Mm, earn a bit of money. I know, yeah. But, yeah. like, I've always um, waited around for a good role and... You know, I mean, things like when, like The Wire was a, a big critical, at least critical success. And by the time season four and five were aired, you know, had a, a lot more viewers than in the earlier seasons. But, mm. uh, you know, I fin- after the, straight after that, I moved to live in the wilds of Kerry, you know. After The Wire. Mm. Yeah. So your agents or your people, you know, the people that you work with to uh, secure your next employment can be a bit... They don't they're like supportive, that. but they're also like it's, it's not. Most people probably wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, they want you to get out there. Or whatever. But you know, you can, the job's always yeah. somewhere else. Like yeah. uh, wherever you live, the job's always somewhere else. So why not? You know, I thought, well, why not live where I want to live and not be, you know, um, I, I put in, I put in twenty years in London. I, you know, I love London, but mm. twenty years, and I was there. You know, you're there for career reasons. It's a long mm. time, you know. Mm. And if you've got, if you've done a decent job of those 20 years, you should be able to go and live somewhere else if you really want to and travel as you, as and when you need to. And it's easy nowadays. And uh, people don't expect you to, I don't care what people expect anyway. Right, well, fair play. Because um, I, I, I do know... I've heard you say that you you will uh, you're, you you to, you've told your agent to send you scripts that maybe some actors wouldn't wouldn't you know independent <laughs> scripts. You said that um, you were being interviewed about one of the films you did. Um, be, 
That how did that someone asked her how did you get the script? Oh yeah, look, I think uh, like it was a first time filmmaker. Yeah, but I think no, look, I mean, I, I'm sure probably most actors want to read everything that's sent their did way, they? but sometimes the agents don't they send them. them or... You see, you've got to let your representative know that you know you do want to see everything, and if somebody offers me a job, even if it's not good, I still like to read it. Um, and. Because it's hard enough reading scripts, isn't it? I mean, they're usually you can you can tell pretty you can you can tell pretty quick if something is good or not, right? And uh, you know, I don't know what the thing you were talking about whether that was in relation to say that film still or mm. Your Ugly Two, which was an Irish film from a few years ago. Those things come along, and they don't. They're not like when they arrive at. Uh, the office of uh, London agents, or you know, they're not. There's no big money involved, or no big names mm. involved. You know, first time directors is going to be like the actor that they cast in the adult role, which you know might be you and an eight year old kid. You know, mm. um, I think in that case, I had got in touch and said, "Look out for this stuff. There's something going to come in, and if, if so, like take it seriously because I've this guy's a friend of my brother's, or whatever." Uh, that you was know, in the case of which was the Europe or still I think he'd mm. I can't remember but what about uh, what was the, uh, Treacle Junior well Treacle was a kind of homemade job you know yeah. like um, the director Jamie Thraves um, I was when I was in America in that post queers folk period yeah um, you know done this indie thing called Buddy Boy I was living down near the beach um, and uh, trying to find something else interesting to do mm. that didn't well, that wasn't too reminiscent of the character or the queers folk. And there was all this stuff we were going to do more. We want to do more queers folk, which I didn't want to do. You know, we ended up doing two more episodes. Mm. Um, but this script came in from this guy Jamie Thraves um, mm-hmm. called The Lowdown, and Jamie had directed. Video. I mean, all I knew, all I had to go on was he'd made a well, he'd made a video for Radiohead, a brilliant video for the song "Just." All right. Okay, and it's uh, it's one of the better music videos I've seen, and he's made a he's made a lot of videos for lots of people, you know. But mm. uh, he tends to make them like short films, like they'll have a narrative, and um, so I'd seen that, and his short films I watched and was very impressed with. So. We went off and did this film called The Lowdown over the end of that summer in London, out in uh, Dalston, some area that's now super hip, but at the time it was still quite edgy. Well, Dalston still is edgy, but mm. um, it's not. it wasn't full of hipsters then. Um, and I started a, a, this relation, working relationship with uh, Jamie. Actually, Bowie funny enough, was involved in that as well. Yeah. Uh, he put up like 25% of the budget. Um, uh-huh. Film 4 had this thing where they were, you know, had a b- bunch of new directors come along and th- there was a few people who wanted to or, you know, talked into investing money in these projects and and Bowie had picked that one based on the script, I believe, because mm. he liked it because it was odd uh-huh. and he probably would seen that he probably was familiar with the, the music video. I don't know, mm. but um, it's on the credits. It's funny. Oh. It's uh, and did you Bosey, Bosey in association with Bosey. It's funny because I did um, when when Bowie died. I was uh, I, you know did a, a, 
uh, an, inter- an interview for one of the newspapers, you know, along with a bunch of other people about, you know, mm. what you thought and, you know, what influenced Bowie. And it never even occurred to me that uh, I'd been in a film that he'd uh, part produced mm. or that, um, that he'd come to see that play in London that time. Yeah. But I didn't meet him. No. Anyway, um... What did you think of his, um... Play the um, musical. I didn't see it. What Lazarus? The Lazarus. The one yeah. I didn't see it. Yeah. Has that yeah. been on here? No, uh, I, I saw it in London. Oh no, I didn't see it. Yeah. What's it like? Well, I really liked it, but I mean, I like the music as well. So um, it's not really a strong narrative over it. Yeah, but I haven't seen it. I mean, I went to see the Man Who Fell to Earth again when it came out, and they yeah. re-released it. That's quite a head scratcher. Um, as much as I love it and it's so way out I do mm. love it for that um, but about an hour and three quarters in I was like mm, just remember the first time I saw it and I was like how, the, how, how you know that was one of the that was one of the ones from the red corner shop do you know what I mean oh yeah 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 the matter of fact <laughs> yeah yeah uh, stuff like that don't look back and that kind uh, of don't things. look now yeah or don't look now um, so yeah. look um, Jamie Trave so we did that and then we years later um, he became a good friend, you know, and we were around in in the house. He was, I don't know what he was doing? He was directing a video for Coldplay, actually, another really successful video, which won loads of MTV awards and all that, for a song called The Scientist, it's one that's all backwards. Mm. And he came around with a copy book, like a, a school copy book with the, the thing completely storyboarded. And said, what do you think it is? And I was like, oh, that looks pretty good. And that's happening. And around the same time, I was had a video uh, of uh, Shimmy Marx's film, Master of the Universe, yeah. about Aidan Walsh, who people in Ireland and people in Dublin Aiden Walsh, may yeah. know. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? Of do course you? I do, yeah. He, he released an album. Oh, I see him around town all the mm. time, and he's gone, you're more famous than me now, Joe. Yeah, all that. I mean, I was, I, oh, oh, I've known him since I was quite very young, actually, from Gardner Street. Cause yeah. Because we were in the youth theater. And before that, like, I was an altar boy in the church, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was a kid, and he used to work there. Did you base the character in Treacle on Aiden Walsh? Yeah, well, yeah, of course yeah. I did. But I mean, yeah. we were uh, <laughs> we were looking at the video, Shimmy's film, Master of the Universe. And I was like, I'd love to play Aiden Walsh right. in a film. I mean, it's a, we were working on uh, a biopic, you know, trying to do some kind of a, an actual biopic. Now, I know that sounds quite grand, but I mean, you know, a film about, you know, literally about Aidan Walsh and his actual story. Yeah. But it just didn't seem possible, you know? Yeah. It just didn't seem, it just didn't really work, you know? So we were doing workshops with uh, a few actors. Mm. We had a couple of different stories and we were trying to do that. But we also had this other story about a, a squatty who comes back from Iraq, you know, like a, from like a Liverpool so we were just like doing, we'd just do a scene from this and we'd do a scene from this. We were just improv and different things. Mm, mm, and eventually mm. we ended up with a kind of a hybrid of the two stories. You know, the whole thing of this guy who is obviously based on Aidan Walsh, like mm. a, an optimist in the face of, you know, defying the odds in what, you know, life has dealt him with like cr- crazy optimism. Yeah, yeah. And, and something that was filtered in from the other story, which was that we were also working on, which was like a violent girlfriend and... A man who disappeared from, you know, who one day just walks away from his family, which was, you know, the the main guy in that really is Mm. this character, the other guy, Tom. And it's a a great, you know, it's a very sad premise. You know, a guy is sitting there with his his wife and his baby up in 
you know, Birmingham, Birmingham or whatever, mm. and then just says, just walks out the door one day, just never comes back, mm. you know, because that happens. And it's, uh, you know, it's, you might never really get to know the reasons. And in this, in the case of this, you never really did get to know the reasons. Um, but he, his film got hijacked, <laughs> which uh, someone had written something about it, which was quite funny. It was almost like there was this kind of somber, arty film about this guy walking around in a kind of a Joy Division coat in his arty, somber, this is a film about me disappearing through the cracks. And then uh. this film gets hijacked by this <laughs> crazy puppy. Anyway, look, that I film know, did yeah. well. Mm, mm. And uh, we did, we've done another one recently called Pickups, which showed at the Dublin Film Festival this year and it has a really good slot coming up at the London Film Festival oh really okay cool. yeah cool. Um, so is it difficult though to swap between something like uh, a Hollywood type film say I don't know the Batman thing and then down to an, or I wouldn't say down to but be working in an, a different obviously you've got this massive crew and yeah, I quite and like going from one of those, from those kind of things one to the other I mean I love that you know to low budget yeah yeah or no budget which in, yeah. in the case of the thing we have coming up at the film festival the pickups like that's no budget yeah 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 that's filmed in our houses with our dogs and our cars yeah um, you know uh, I've always liked going from you know one extreme to I've, I've been lucky enough to to have uh, been working on things mm. uh, where I get you know, I can get paid and then do something mm. where I can, uh, something like pickups, which we made ourselves, you know, um, you know, between, between, uh, the wire and game of Thrones, you know, that's like HBO has been my, um, um, like really my employer for like 10 years, 11 years, you know, mm-hmm. the other stuff is, it, it, it allows you to do the other stuff. Mm hmm. Yeah. And how did the war come about then? Did, did you audition for that? or um, I was in a play in New York, uh, The Caretaker, Harold Pinter mm-hmm. play. And as, like I said, I'm not good at auditions, so I, can, I could draw a line very clear from uh, all the way back from, we'll say that play, Mojo. Mm. You know, I could join the dots very specifically and clearly from, you know, this, well, this led to that that guy saw that, mm. you know, then this woman saw that, you know, it's, uh, it's very straightforward. Mm. Um, I was doing, I'd done a film of this play, Mojo, you know, mm. we did it at the Royal Court in 95. We did the film, Harold Pinter was in the film. Uh, the play came up in New York. The director was a guy who'd done a good bit of, um, good few of Pinter's plays, a uh, Welsh director, David Jones, and um, he, I'm not sure who had suggested us for this role, but, you know, it's a three, there's three people in this play, and, you know, Kyle MacLachlan was cast in it, Patrick Stewart was cast in it, and they had to fill this other role, this character called Mick, and who's quite a mysterious character, as they are all the characters in The Caretaker. And um, we had to have a phone conversation, mm. you know. It wasn't, I wasn't going to be going to New York and... Um, but Pinter gave us the, uh, uh, gave us his approval, if you like, mm. as someone who would be good for this. So I, we had a conversation with, I had a conversation with the director on the phone, went to New York, which I was quite terrified about, actually. I mean, I'd done, I'd done plenty of stuff, you know, on, in London, various stages here and there, but this was a, one of just, you know, get, going off on the plane on your own, mm. 
um, it was kind of unknown for me. And also, I knew that they savage you on Broadway if you're not, if you mm. don't, you know, if you don't, if you're not right, if you're not good, they'll really let you know, you know. And if the show is not good, it'll close down. And um, so, uh, I, I remember like very vividly going in the car from getting a taxi from where I lived in, at the airport. I mean, I can remember the journey, just what I was looking at, just looking at the, at the trees and the buildings and what I was thinking. And I remember the plane journey, like tiny details of it. I remember, you know, a lot about that because it was um, significant. I thought if I could, this could work or it's not going to work. And if, if I fuck it up here, I've fucked it up, you know. Mm. Um, which is the opposite of if you can make it there, you'll make it anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> That's a uh, new lyric to that song. Anyway, Rob, Bob Colesbury was a producer of Note. You know, he'd worked on films with Martin Scorsese and Alan Parker, but he was also a producer on The Wire, and he acted in The Wire, played a character called Roy Cole. And, you know, a few weeks into the run at the Roundabout in New York, I got a, a call about, there's a fellow producer wants to know, do you want to come and meet him and have breakfast and talk about this role they've got, got up in this series called The Wire which I hadn't seen um, because they were only they'd only shown season one and it was shown on HBO which I you know, didn't have and it wasn't you know so I didn't know what it was I, I went and had breakfast with uh, Bob Colesbury and you know he talked about this character that hadn't really been written yet you know but it was kind of based on a number of people but including a real guy, or at least it was going to reflect what was happening in Baltimore in the uh, the council, you know, in the mayor's office. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, well, that's Martin O'Malley," and it is based in part on Martin O'Malley, and no one can deny that. But it's not, it's not Martin O'Malley. You know, it's mm. so you, you're not like looking at Martin O'Malley. I am, like yeah, but like it's are? other people too. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, so, and Martin O'Malley wasn't crazy about it because this is a city he's trying to revamp and it's portraying it in a, in, you know, it's showing it in a light that's not, doesn't really fit his mandate. But look, mm. you know, I think his relationship with David Simon's probably mellowed out a bit now. Mm. The people love that so much. It was a thing that was made with love for the city, but it just showed yeah. it as it was. Um, so I was able to talk to Colesbury because, you know, um, as he described it to me, I was like, okay, that sounds like um, a bit like the John Sayles film, City of Hope. And he's like, well, I, I was one of the producers on City of Hope. Uh, I, I think without that touchstone, I'm not sure, you know, which way the conversation would have went after that. Right, but yeah. that steered it in a particular direction, and we talked for a fair old time, you know. Mm. And about a month later, you know, I called, I uh, put a call in about, what, what's, this, what's the story with that? series that we met for um, and they said you know it was uh, Bob Colesby had died the day before like unexpectedly during a kind of routine heart surgery uh, you know and the, the next season was, a bit, was about to go into production yeah. soon anyway um, it was kind of devastating for everyone I didn't know him but it felt like I knew him and you know he's the, he is the guy who brought me in there mm-hmm. uh, so I went a few weeks later they gave us a call and they're very dry you know um, and clever 
and honest, you know. So I think it was David Simon said, look, uh, you're Bob Cosby's last casting call, so whether we like you or not, we're probably going to have to give you the part, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and I did a couple of scenes on tape for them, and I went, walked back off around. I was down in uh, somewhere... I was trying on mascara earlier. Can you see it? No. it? No, no, I can't see it. You were trying it, yeah. I don't um, see it, no. So we... Yeah, yeah, so I did a few scenes and I was walking around down Spring Street somewhere. There's a bar like down there, actually, and I thought, I'll go in and have a beer. And I'm, and I'm kind of glad I didn't because just then the phone rang and said, well, can you come back and do more scenes? Oh, yeah. So um, they rustled up a couple of scenes that George Pelicanos, uh, who's one of the writers on The Wire, is a great novelist, uh, in his own right. Yeah. Um, he's also just written the new uh, drama that David, you know, that that team have yeah. come up with. It's called Deuce, and it's set in the New York in uh, the 70s. stars James Franco as twins. Really? Um, I think oh. it's around the porn cinema kind of okay. hustle. I loved um, Tre- Treme. Yeah, Treme and uh, Generation Kill was great as well. Mm. Anyway, look, they called us back in and they'd written he'd just knocked this scene off and it was something that was a more suitable kind of scene or it showed another kind of Mm. uh, side to this Karketi character so we did another couple of scenes and my answer is like incredibly long no but they're very interesting Uh, so look um, they gave us the gig and within a month I'm back in Baltimore and then I was there on off for the next three years, for like you know seven months of the year, kind of thing. Mm. And you were there all the time, not all the time, because I was flying back and forth a lot because I had two young kids in in in, in London. But it was shot episode by episode, so it wasn't a case of you can shoot your stuff in three weeks and then take a month off. Mm. And I was in uh, whatever the three seasons I was in, I was in every episode. So you had scenes, you always had scenes. It might only be one scene or two scenes, but you were in every episode, so uh, it meant every 10 days you were there. Mm. And if you shot your stuff early on and you had like a week off, they'd let you split 10 for four, five days or something. You know? But I mean, I'd sh- mm. sometimes I'd go back just for one night, you know? In Baltimore, it was in Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. so you'd fly yeah. from Baltimore to mm. London, usually via Reykjavik, because that was the... Um, Iceland, yeah. Icelandic area, mm. and it was most economical. Okay, and did you hang around Baltimore much then? Like, yeah. You, so did you get to know the? I, I did. Mean, yeah. I mean, look, a, you know, I was going to be playing a, a politician, the mayor, yeah. the guy who was running for mayor. So I thought I better get to know this place. Yeah. So you know, as soon as I could move into a street, or as, you know, as opposed to you know, they did put us in an apartment place early on, and you know, finding a house and getting to know the neighbors and the neighborhoods. And there was a political journalist mm. called Bill Zorzi who uh, took me in and, you know, gave me the, the the tour. And, the you know, we were in City Hall within, you know, the first day watching, you know, the council in action. And yeah, were you? Well, you can do that. You can walk yeah. in and out of these places. Okay. You really can. Um, he was available, you know, 24-7, really, if you've got questions yeah. about uh, what does this mean. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a world that I didn't um, understand yeah. Uh, of course, you know, in the weeks coming up to it, I would have been studying it. But like, before you get the job, you're not—you're hardly going to be sitting around studying local politics in Baltimore. No. Yeah. So it was, you know, you got to 
get up on that stuff pretty fast. But mm. there was the, the right people were around you. And the first day on set was a memorial service for Bob Colesbury, and his red sports car was there, and wow. everyone was up. Uh, they were pretty cut up, obviously pretty cut up about it, but you know, mm. it wasn't just that he was a, a remote producer. He was a guy who had a very hands-on um, involvement in the creative side of it. Like he brought in DPs, or you know, he would you know get involved in you know uh, editorial, you know, like p- big editorial decisions, and bring mm. actors on. And he also acted in it himself. You know, I don't know what that role was, but what? Was but he's a cop. Cop in it, was it? Yeah, okay. Ray Cole. Okay. So the wire, like you know, you know how few people feel about the wire. I mean, it's yeah, it's just. It was one of those things that w- when you finished watching it, you're going, "What am I going to do with my life?" That's <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it's just just amazing. I mean, it's the one thing. It's the one thing I've been involved with that I'd have to say I couldn't do without mm. you know I like big ensemble dramas too where no one's no, no one's really put up front you know mm. it's, it's more about the writers than anything yeah um, it's just incredible like, yeah. I mean I don't think anything has come I've Breaking Bad kind of but not quite the same yeah they're different you know it's mm. a different kind Mm. of drama because it's it's really based on what's going on and it kind of goes a little bit beyond just TV entertainment you know it's entertaining but that's not what it is ultimately Breaking Bad was entertainment but but, but, but The Wire there was something substantial there you know there was something yeah I mean it's political it's a yeah. statement yeah yeah Incredible. But also it had that feeling where you just can't wait for the next episode. Mm. It was like a book, a really, really good yeah, novel. Yeah, but, but you had to wait till the next episode, which nowadays you don't, you know. Yeah, that's right. Well, Breaking Bad, I think, yeah, it came out in one go, didn't it, or something? Well, I don't know. just with a lot of the stuff, particularly mm. the stuff that's made by companies like Netflix, you can just watch it all in one go. Yeah, I think I got it at a box set, so I could, I could watch, but I, I rationed it. Like the first time, the first stuff I saw the wire was on VHS. VHS was tapes. It? Yeah. yeah, they sent us a couple of VHSs. Yeah. Um, and I watched an episode from near the end and of it's, season two, and I was like, fuck me. You know? It was the scene where Ziggy, the character Ziggy, was in the bar, and there was this blues band playing, and he's got his cock out, and, you know, <laughs> it's all this stuff with the Greeks, and, you know, it was quite devastating. Oh, Ziggy, yeah, the Ziggy, yeah. the guy that sounded the docks. Yeah, 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 yeah. What yeah. an amazing character. Who's yeah. that actor? He's incredible. James Ransom. Yeah, he's amazing. He was also in Generation Kill, and I'm not really mm. sure what he's up to since, but anyone who hasn't seen Generation Kill, I recommend that. Right, okay. Okay, cool. Um, we've talked a good one, but we haven't mentioned Game of Thrones, so I think I should mention it, or should we just ignore it? <laughs> but um, was, was that a case of an audition as well? Um, I did go in and read for that role, yeah. Yeah, you did. Yeah. yeah. Things like that, you know, anything that's a big um, project for a company like HBO or whatever, like mm. even no matter how many people they bring in, you know, they could bring in 50 or two mm. or one or whatever. They want to see you on, you know, they want to see what you look like mm. and they want to see what you can do, what you're going to bring to this thing. So that's, that'd be standard enough, you know, um, with anything massive like that. I did go in and... and Read, yeah. Would you know if there are other actors reading for that? Or would you? You kind of know, because you might meet somebody later on down the road and he says, that's, I went in, I went in and read for that role. 
which I have met an actor who I know who's a friend of mine it's been in and read for that role all oh, right okay <laughs> um but you know I don't I tend to you don't want to think about that shit and so one of the, one of the other things about why I never really took to um wanting to live in Los Angeles I mean you go around there for a there's a casting call. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Have you spent any time over there? Have you gone no, in for any jobs no, over there? No, 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 no. Only done a couple of gigs there, but that's it. Yeah. So you go along, and then you might you might, you might go along. And there's like 30, 30 guys there. It's like they like they show it in movies, you know. Yeah. All kind of standing around, but like and all looking like Brad Pitt, and you know, giving yeah. each other massages and. Oh my god! Uh, it's it's intense, you know. I don't like it. I was there. I went over yeah. for pilot season, which is that amped up to, you know. To eleven, uh, you know, it's it's the pilot season thing, right? Is interesting because they shoot all these pilots for the TV shows around a certain time, mm. and they they want to, you know, sign people up to contracts that you know if the thing if the thing lifts off, they've got you there for six years or whatever. Mm. So you know, there'll always be roles for actors who are known, but there's also lo- loads of roles for actors who are unknown, and it's quite a democratic thing. I mean, you can go in there and you can score a brilliant role. And you know, become uh, yeah, a star if that's what you're after. Yeah. Um, and but you're the, walking. You know, you go if you've got a decent agent. They'll set you up with like three auditions a day for like say it's like two week period. But like really? they'll often give you like pages and pages of dialogue. And you know, and over there, I mean, and here now, although it used to be the case, you've got to learn it. You've got to know it. You can't be going in with bits of paper, mm. you know, and reading it. You've got to know it and have studied it and really do it. Mm. Um, so you're like doing, go, driving around like massive distances, like 40 miles to get from here to there, across Los Angeles to do this audition for this pilot or go in and tape for this pilot. Mm. Doing that all day and then learning, you know, nine pages of dialogue for the next day with three mm. different characters and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, it's a grind. And the last time I was over there auditioning for stuff, there was, I was, you know, halfway through one of these days and I was you know, in a room being filmed and I was, you know, talking down some, you know, I was the air traffic controller and somebody had hijacked a plane and you're doing this stuff. And like, I just said, I can't do it. This really, um, I think they thought I meant I can't do it. There's something wrong with me. You know, I'm, I'm falling apart. I was just, I was kind of saying, I can't do this yet. Right. Right. So, uh, meaning I, I this isn't for me. Yeah. And also I don't believe in what I'm saying here. Mm hmm. So I got in, I just got in the car and drove up to Zabriskie Point, you know, mm-hmm. which if you've ever seen the film Zabriskie Point or it's a very strange geological, basically it's the middle of nowhere. It's like prehistory, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I just kept going and went snowboarding and yeah. up in Yosemite, got a couple of speeding tickets <laughs> and, you know, just, just left, just that, went. That was the last time I went up for anything over there. But, you know, look, I work, uh, I've worked, you know, I do work out of there or around there. You know, my main kind of place of uh, gaining my employment is, you know, is from, LA. from there, yeah. Hollywood or LA. Yeah, yeah. even though I don't, I don't live there. Yeah. You've done a couple of action movies. Yeah, I did a couple of things. Real fun, too. Twelve Rounds. Yeah. Did you have a poster for it in there? I'll show you oh, is there? I didn't see. <laughs> um, Twelve Rounds. I did, yeah. yeah. And that was a case of I was over there and this thing came up, going and meet these Rennie Harlan for this role. And, yeah. you know, three weeks later, I'm in New Orleans for three months, you know. Oh, was it? Yeah. 
Um, and that was, I loved that. I mean, it, you know, it's a popcorn action thing with a wrestling star, you know? Mm, yeah. Uh, You're Barton Fink. You're like, remember Barton Fink went off to Los Angeles and he ends up writing wrestling pictures. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> he goes from being this Clifford O'Death type character with a, you know, uh, glittering Broadway career to writing wrestling pictures yeah. for Wallace Beery. Anyway, look, so I did a wrestling down in um, in New Orleans, and I loved it. And you John, you but, did well, wrestling? No, I mean, no, John Cena, who was the, you know... The, the main guy, he's the, a wrestler. The hero. Yeah. You know, he's from yeah. the wrestling world, and I was playing right. the villain. But Rennie Harlan did some great action movies, you know. Yeah. Die Hard 2, mm-hmm. Cliffhanger. Right, yeah. Um, and the stunt, the stunt guys and girls, they all love him, you know. So all the cars, there's like car chases and stuff. It was all for real. You know, you're driving around you know, slick streets doing handbrake turns. Really, corners, are you? People firing real guns. You know, they're, they're firing these airsoft things that will, like, take chips out of the wall behind you. And I did a ribbon, actually, doing that, jumping doing jumping out of the boot of a car or something. You know, mm-hmm. like, I had fun with that. So I have done a few things like that, yeah, and uh, enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So you can do your arty stuff and you can do that and you can do it's all... It's all stuff, you know. That's amazing. Yeah. Who doesn't it's want to do stuff. action? It's all stuff. <laughs> I mean, but you're probably not going to go the whole Nicolas Cage route, probably. But yeah, um, go, I don't know. That where far. does that where does it end? Uh, you're hijacking a fucking massive plane. No, I'm just and taking small, over the world or small something. helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a mullet. <laughs> I fucking love a mullet. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a mullet now. I reckon actually a mullet would be a great. Uh, my son's in a band, and I just reckon you know when like um, a band comes out, like may- maybe the Manic Street Preachers came out first. They just were against everything. I just reckon uh, four lads with mullets. Mm. Well, mullets went the, through a kind the, of a very hip revival period. If you, I'd say about ten years back, if you looked at the pages of Dazed and Confused or Iz, yeah, full of mullets. Oh, was it? Oh, Jesus! Yeah, yeah. yeah. And moustaches. Well, yeah, even before, yeah, moustaches, kind of little wispy moustaches and mullets, yeah. Moustaches are funny, look, because when I was... Remember Freddie Mercury? Freddie Mercury had an amazing moustache, and nobody... We all thought Freddie Mercury was just a bloke, you know? We never thought he was gay. And, uh, the, and lads loved him. Oh, you know, Freddie's fucking brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And then... Even well, though the band, you didn't, well, you didn't the band know what the were called Queen signified. Yeah. No, we never knew. Yeah, that. But even George Michael, I was looking at one of the top of the pops mm. Christmas specials that they throw up, and even when Wham came on the scene first, you know, the lads in shorts, shorts, yeah, standing there, and you know, per- blonde perms. Although I, I don't know about Andrew Ridgely, but you know, it just seemed like fun music. Yeah, and, just a, a couple of lads having a bit um, of Yeah, yeah. How do we get into that? Oh yeah, I've had a few good mustaches in my day. I mean, in, um. In, Actors love growing beards, for yeah. theater, for, especially for theatre. Yeah. And I, I tell you who loves growing beards is like uh, really good-looking actors love growing beards to show that there's more to them than just, you know, <laughs> hiding behind the beard. <laughs> a fella, I, said, I met a fella that I went to school with once, and um, he had a bit of stubble on. I was like, that's interesting. I, never I said, have you ever had a beard? And he goes, I had two beards. <laughs> <laughs> not simultaneously, I presume. Yeah, no, not yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a couple of big. A, I've had a couple of. I grew a pretty. I, I I grew a kind of Tom Selleck mustache for. We did the play Glen Gary Glen Ross on stage in London in the yeah. West End, and I grew a kind of Tom Selleck. I, I quite I liked it. Yeah, 
Okay, well, if there's any producers out there have have a part with a beard, <laughs> right in now. What about cr- crying? Is that a tough one? What cry on like crying? Yeah. Um, I I was think you know that must be the hardest thing an actor. Then don't do. do it if it's too hard. I mean, yeah. I I wouldn't if I was directing. I went from beards to crying. There. If I was directing an actor <laughs> in a in a in a scene, I wouldn't over play that one too much. You know, I'd say if that happens, fine. If you can make that happen, fine. If you need need to make it happen, you can fake it. It's a film. It's a it's a it's a bad fakery anyway. Mm. If you really want to see a tear coming out of somebody's eye, you'll get it. You'll get a tear coming out of their eye if you want to. By whatever means you have to do, even if it's blowing a Vix inhaler into their eye. Mm. But what I don't like, I mean, this, I've done scenes and things where I've had to cry, you know. I saw you in uh, the film Mr. John, yeah? There's the very, partic- right at the end, mm. you, you're in grief. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that people, but, but I, what's not good, what's not cool is, I, m- I remember this recently, there was a scene I was doing and. Uh, I got in a car and the driver on the way in says, big day today. You've got to do the crying scene today. And that can kill it stone dead. Yeah. You know, and that's pretty pretty irresponsible thing to say. And, you know, people mm-hmm. shouldn't be saying shit like that to you. Uh, but I would never force it, you know. Um, sometimes, and sometimes it just happens when it's, it's not in the script or, you know. And then sometimes like that kid, Sonny Green, in that uh, film... Still, he couldn't stop himself. Now, he's, this is a guy who's never acted before, and whatever he was thinking about, he just could not control himself. Yeah. He just started blubbering and bawling for like about an hour and a half, even after we'd finished, you know? So there was something he was bringing up to help Yeah. Him, or? So, you know, if you can do that, fine. And, is that what and you it's did? not the be-all and end-all, you know what I mean? If, you can't, if it doesn't happen, don't worry mm-hmm. about it. But is that what you were doing in that case? In that, in any case, there's well, look, the part of Mr. John was very specific. Yeah. You know, it's at the end of this whole thing, and it was written. You know, what they showed in the film was one thing. In the in the script, it said we zoom in on his eye, and a tear comes out of his eye, and freeze frame end of film. Mm. And that was for me. I remember when I read it, that's that's good. I like it. You know, this guy doesn't. He's kind of. You don't really know. He doesn't demonstrate much. You don't mm. really know what's going on in his head. His brother's died. You're yeah. not really sure what he feels about his brother, but you see at the end something. He's showing some tiny thing, you know. Um, so uh, that had to happen somewhere or other. You know, it was important. Also, then we did that thing still, and that script had almost the same ending. And I said to the director, of that, I said, look, I've done another job, and this kind of happened, so can we not do that? But we ended up kind of doing it. But by then, by that stage, Sonny, Sonny Green was the crier in that film. Right, okay. But you, you would be bringing something from your own memory. Well, that's, you know, that's what acting is, uh, yeah. generally, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, you're an actor. Yeah, So that's you, true. Use, you use your own stuff. Yeah. And it's a box of tricks, you know what I mean? It's not all but that, you know It's I just mean? that when you're on set, that's all very well, but then you're in a situation where there's... Just loads of people looking at you. There's no, a camera, yeah. there's lights, there's I know, pe- sometimes makeup that's what people you want. going up to yeah, you. Yeah, sometimes people like lots of people looking at them, and that's why they're doing it in the first place. Uh, now, sometimes, and this is why I have sympathy for people like Christian Bale going apeshit. Mm. Um, 
you're doing a scene but there's something that you really need to be kind of in your head and people are joking and laughing and doing all this inappropriate stuff around you like they they haven't really thought through what's going on Mm. that can be a bit of a problem Mm. and you don't want to start throwing chairs around you know a little bit of a lack of responsibility going on there or just a lack of thought sometimes had it recently on on a job I was on um and smartphones are a problem on sets. They really are. Like, everyone's on the phone now all the time. So even if you have a rule, you know, if there's a rule, no phones on set, you mightn't see them, you know, right in front of the camera, you mightn't see them, but you're off, you know, off the side of some set. You're about to walk on, and the person who's giving you your cues on Facebook or on Snapchat or whatever, it's really fucking... Um, it's distracting, and it's not like you want you, you feel like they should be paying attention to what you're doing, but you can see that they're, they'd rather be somewhere else, you know. And they're yeah. getting paid to do something. Everyone's like spends a lot of their time, their you know, their working hours now doing stuff that's you know inconsequential, um, st- unnecessary uh, doodling, noodling yeah. around the internet, yeah. and the lights off them it can be very distracting. Like you're filming something, you're filming something, and it's a crowded room. I'm on stage making a speech, you know, to a room with nobody there, which is hard, right? But there's several people out there in the dark, and you can see that they're on their phones. So they're not even listening to you either, and it's distracting, and it's an issue. And also you've got people taking pictures, you've got people taking pictures of the monitors. Um, Game of Thrones has been quite good about uh, people obeying the no phones rule, especially as far as taking pictures of people in costume. But you will get something like the famous... John Snow, who's you know the Kit Harrington character everybody thought was dead, and you know halfway through the season somebody takes a picture of him mm-hmm. filming a scene, standing up on top of a pile of like twenty people he's just killed or whatever. So you kind of know he's he's back, and someone is doing that because they'll be able to leak it or something. Yeah, or they didn't get their sandwiches. <laughs> Jesus Christ! But uh, yeah, the soup wasn't warm enough. Yeah. Having said that, it's been pretty decent on that. You know, it's a real relief when someone makes a strong uh, no phones mm. statement. You know, so you know you're not on, and a lot most good actors don't be checking their phone, don't have their phones with them, and they're not on them all the time. Yeah. I, I feel you know sometimes I'll have the phone because I'll have to have it because I've got kids, and I you know I'll need to just be reachable. But uh, you feel bad when you pull it out sometimes, it's especially upset, if you, especially yeah. if you find yourself doing something that you don't need to do. Yeah, that's did, not good how many people liked my last tweet um, but you know there's people you know yeah. people who are really good you don't see them messing around their phones they don't have phones with them their work their yeah. it's work time yeah mm. it's also a nice relief it's a, a nice excuse not to have your phone as well because we've all become a little bit attached to them mm-hmm. um, if you give yourself the excuse of well I'm supposed to be working here I don't I can switch this thing off for eight hours or just leave it in the bag in the back at base it's yeah uh, it's crazy I mean it's it's pretty bad for live gigs. Live. Well, because everyone's holding the phone up. Well, but also you just see people checking. They're just oh, yeah. checking their phone yeah. when they're supposed to be watching a gig. First time and I saw just, them, first mm. time I saw it, I was um, I was doing a play at the Almeida in London where I used to enter uh, from the roof, hanging upside down on a rope. I yeah. was doing uh, the Tempest, and I was playing Ariel in the Tempest. And I was swinging like a pendulum. And I used to see, the, especially when we had groups of kids in, like school groups, on the balcony. Yeah. You could see the phones going. So you're hanging upside down, going back and forth, like being lowered through the roof. And you're just seeing this. 
you know, and it was only a few. It might be like six phones. Mm. Now I'd say, especially with a school group, that could be up to... And people will even take calls now. I've seen people in the theater actually take a call yeah. and start talking. And they do it in the cinema a lot more now as well. Yeah, it's a fucking just bane in my life sometimes. I mean, uh, they should be announced beforehand. It is. But normal. you're talking about comedy gigs. Well, sometimes a comedy gigs. Now, if it's in uh, a theater, it's fine. People, there's an announcement or something. If mm. someone hasn't made the announcement, it's just annoying. It's just that somebody can't concentrate long enough without going, oh, I, yeah. wonder, I wonder, did someone... But, but at, a music, at a music gig and you've got like everyone filming the whole thing. Yeah. Who's ever, are they Not ever going to watch it? Are they ever going to watch it? there. No. They yeah. might watch it or else if they, were, if they wanted, they could just go and look for it. Someone, someone else will have filmed it better. Yeah. You know what I mean? With, a, with proper, probably a decent sound rig. I mean, any decent gig that's on, someone has actually filmed it and got proper sound on it from somewhere. Yeah. So you want to just watch so, someone else's version. Uh, if, yeah, you, I, if you feel like you have to do that and enjoy yourself on the night. Yeah, because you know? it's very hard to experience something if you're looking at it through a screen. Even if you're a tourist look, and you're going into the Sistine Chapel, I mean, why not just look at the fucking place rather than yeah. video it? Recently I was in you know. Africa and I was in, went off looking at some, in, you know, I was filming there and I went up with my son to uh, Kruger National Park, which is a safari park. Or it's, you know, it's a huge reserve, massive. It's the size of Holland. Mm. And we went driving around looking at lions and leopards you know up close just as close as we are to mm. each other now and we didn't bring phones or cameras and it's it's much you know it's just really cool way of doing it mm. the guys were saying that the guys from the park were saying that's very unusual most people have the phone out or the camera out all the time yeah so they were wondering about these they kind of felt a bit sorry for these irish fellows who didn't have phones or cameras but it is like you're watching TV then, so you're not actually there. You're watching a screen. I mean, I remember one time when I was driving around uh, Kerry, but there was an American guy driving the car, and we were going, there was a sheer drop on our left or wherever. And uh, the one way I could calm myself down was take out the video camera and pretend I was watching a film. <laughs> I don't know how that calms you down. Because then I felt like I wasn't there. I, oh, right, I, you, I, I was, you mean, I was so shitting you, it. Were you filming what you were... You weren't watching an actual film. No, I was filming like what was going on. Even though it was what was going on, it, yeah. it take, took me out of the situation. I wasn't panicking then. I was looking at a screen. Yeah. The first guy who picked me mm. up in Baltimore, actually, when I went over there, he, had, like, he was driving me in a car, but he was watching Fast and Furious on the fucking, in the car at the time. Like yeah. on a screen that was going at the same time as we were driving. It was really uh, quite mm. dizzying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just want to add, uh, pick your brain on one thing. It just uh, when, you're, when you're trying to... Um, say you're getting into a, something like that that's deeply emotional. When you're trying to act. When you're trying to act. Is there ever a fear that you're going to lose... That that emotion's going to over come overtake you and, and it, that you won't well, did you go want too ever, far. that you won't ever come back well I mean uh, yeah I kind of can, I think you can or definitely you have no you control know, over it do you know what I mean yeah but I mean those I think if you have no control over it it's, I think people strive for that you know people like to get lost in the moment mm-hmm. it doesn't always you can't it's not that easy it's not that easy at all to just even get, I mean to find the right thing is not particularly easy mm. I've definitely yeah there are times like when I said with that kid with that guy that kid Sonny kid Green he it, just yeah. got lost and I've seen that a few times and you know, yeah, I've been there a f- couple of times 
Um, but it's never, you know, I've never felt like, you know, it's you're in danger here of tipping over into, mm. yeah, you know, some kind of place you'll never ever come back from. It's just you have to put yourself in these places. And it is a strange job. I do bang on about uh, how strange a job it is. And this film that I did with Jamie Thraves, Pickups, that's what it's about. It's about how odd this job is, you know, where you're going from, uh, particularly if you're working a lot and you're going from one kind of role to another one, trying to have a normal life. And, and if you're, uh, you know, you really have to put yourself into the mind of these, you know, become other people. So you are... Uh, living in this kind of fantasy world nearly all the time mm. and trying to have, and you've got this normal life, which has becomes uh, less easy to live in the same way that everybody else does. Mm. And particularly if you're then getting people coming up to you on the street who, you know, either want to take your photo or want to tell you how shit they think you are or how great mm. they think you are or whatever. Or like they you know, might it's, it's, it's see a, it's you a, it's strange. as, it's as a, strange, a character. As it's well. a strange, uh, yeah. more so than being a writer or probably similar to being a musician. Although if you're a musician, they tend to think of you as kind of one character, like all the time. Yeah. Um, and I guess you're, if your thing is good, you know, it'll, it's consistent. Whereas, you know, if you're doing a different thing every few months as an actor some of it might work, some of it might. And so you're dealing with, you know, it's extremes of, uh, you know, people are, aren't afraid to tell you if they don't like shit. it. You know, they're not, you know, and that's good. And that's the way it should be. But like, uh, so it's, you're only ever as good as, as the last one. So you've got to keep. Uh, it is a bit weird, though, that people would want to, come, do want to come up to you and say you were shit and something. Well, look, you know, it's. They go it's, out of their way. It's, 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 <laughs> But I suppose if you're going to... It's not as commonplace. I mean, people are generally decent. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they do want to come and talk to you and they do want photographs and... Mm. Um, there's no... You know, you can't really hide there, yeah. Mm. So, um, but I mean, you seem to... You've, you've got a... Uh, I don't know. I just, I just feel that maybe that some actors might feel um they your personality is much milder i, I don't know you you know you, you they can get into a character and they're amazing i don't know i don't i don't want to name that but like say even de niro he seems to be a very quiet fella and i presume everybody wants him to be uh Travis Bickle or something or well Travis Bickle was kind or, of a quiet fella well he was actually <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't really know how that works. But you know, yeah, De Niro seems to be a... There must be a difficult... I think, you know, you either... You can stay indoors, you know. <laughs> I uh, I like to be yeah. out. If I live somewhere, I'm out and about all the time. You know, I like uh, to participate in the life of the city I live in, you know, and yeah. be out walking around or walking my dog or going to see films or going to see bands, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... Yeah. Uh, Right, yeah, yeah. You're into your music. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks for chatting with me. We didn't really get to wander around, if you yeah, want to. Uh, that's, that's, that's part two.
Gillen there. And uh, great, uh, great chat. And there's lots of stuff. He's just so knowledgeable on film uh, directors, writers. And uh, I could have chatted with him for, for hours. And I would love to chat with him again. And he's, he'll be on pe- the uh, next series of Peaky Blinders. So uh, look out for that. Well, here we are in the St. Peter's Church graveyard. That's St. Peter's Church, the Protestant church. And uh, we're going to check it out. Just a thing that happened uh, during the week as well as... It's been a whirl... It's, a, it's been an amazing week because also I met a, a bloke in Galway two days ago who has a tattoo of my face on his leg well now it is m- m- the character Father Damo from Father Ted and it is a, it is a, car- a cartoony type version but it is it is my face it is my face on his leg Duana right I mean I guess but it, I wasn't No, you, I guess you might think that was scary oh there was a, something ran through there that's just a cat a very big cat though I was thinking, ooh, could be a fox or a badger. Could be some wildlife, which is more exciting in a way, wouldn't it be, than a cat? Why not, really? Yeah, well, there they are, the uh, the dead people lying there. Mm-hmm. Nice place to be... People all say, a nice place to be buried. But does it matter if you're dead? Does it, Duana? Does it matter? Um, not really. You could be buried in a... In an awful place, it wouldn't really matter to you. Well, it depends if people want to visit you. Yeah, that's true, but do you care because you're dead? No. Well, I mean, it depends. You might... Some people might... Do you think you could look forward to being buried in a nice place? Would would that make you feel happy? Not me. It wouldn't make me feel happy. Mm. Some people might. Going, oh, okay. oh, you know, at least I know when I'm dead, I'll be in a nice little garden. Yeah, like maybe all their friends are there, <laughs> their family. So it's like a party. You mean their dead fr- friends? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I don't think if you, if there's life after death, I don't think you'd stay in the place that you're buried. You'd probably head off around. Hopefully, you'd be able yeah. to. You know, ex- I wonder. explore the universe. Sure. Well, yeah, because you wouldn't need you don't have a body, so you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't need oxygen. Yeah, I don't know what the rules of afterlife are. Yeah, I don't know the rules either. <laughs> what was the th- oh yeah, so the guy had a tattoo of his of my face. Uh, he wasn't scared. He was a nice bloke. Yeah, you'd think that might be a bit weird, but no, he's a, he's a decent, a nice bloke, and, and he's punk, a punky guy, and he had Rancid, the band, the words, the, the name of the band Rancid, tattooed on another leg, and some other tattoos, I didn't examine his whole body, um, or even his whole leg, 
to be quite honest. Uh, so uh, that was a thing that happened, and so I've been around. I've been, been I've been around, been around Ireland and doing lots of gigs. So if you're anyway, if it's your first time listening to the podcast, and I say this a lot, give me five stars and a review, and I insist on this because this is free. Is a nice interview, a lovely interview. You're getting it for nothing. Get on iTunes and give me a review and five stars, and give me some feedback on on my Twitter at uh, uh, at Joe Rooney one and um, Instagram Joe Rooney, Facebook Joe Rooney. I just keep the same name for every everything. I'm not on Snapchat, but you could um, WhatsApp me if you have my number, and um, that's it. So that's it, and uh, and there hasn't been many uh, podcasts lately because I've been it's been of a switch over where I'm going to just take uh, control over the whole thing and upload them and stuff but I have to learn how to upload them which I'm doing tomorrow well I'm doomed to upload this podcast I will have uh, learned uh, it's probably very easy but I will have learned uh, when you listen to this and uh, yeah so um uh, I will, I will, I will get them then on a more regular basis. Uh, and so, so, yeah, bloody hell, I, I'm rambling now, but uh, it's nice here in the, it's nice here in the graveyard, and I'm going to go for a. I hope you heard the uh, seagulls. Just listen. If you can hear that, there are seagulls. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, uploading, subscribing, downloading, whatever you do, uh, and I'll talk to you soon. And you get all my dates. If you're looking for my dates, because I'm a comedian, uh, if you haven't noticed that, uh, on www.joerooneycomedian.com. Because in the coming weeks, I will be around the country, places like uh, Cork, Cross, Malina, and uh, the Vodafone Comedy Festival in Dublin, the Laughter Lounge in Dublin, and I'll be at the Oriel uh, Festival somewhere near Drogheda and some other things and then I'll be in Chicago doing a gig towards the end of August I'll be in Kansas City at the beginning of September and I'll be doing uh, I I know I have just they're all on my website come on okay see ya bye
we went and recorded all the music and everything. And then just as he was like two weeks from going into the studio, and that's when he moved on to the next place. And uh, so he never got to sing it. So we always sing it in his honor. And uh, we sing this for all the dads out there and, uh, and all the mums, you know, just uh, kind of everybody in the world we're going to dedicate this to. Okay, let's keep it not so specific. But uh, yeah, this is how it goes. Still my heart Hold my tongue I feel my time I feel my time has come Let me in Unlock the door I never felt this way before The wheels Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today.